0: and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast, Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Gundog by Gary Witter Here's what I know. The mech came to us in peace. A machine race. From some faraway star system. Actually, not particularly far away by their standards, but impossibly distant by our own. They came offering a new future for our people. Our planet. Science, technology, medicine that would have taken us centuries to develop on our own, if ever. And all they asked in exchange was a share of our abundant natural resources, water, seeds, things their dying homeworld needed. Most of my people's history was lost in the war that followed. But this much is remembered. We are a greedy and selfish species. For thousands of years before the Mech, we fought each other almost constantly. For every reason imaginable, and some unimaginable. We made war over the land we all shared. Over the fossilized rocks and oil beneath it. Even over whose god was the greater. (laughs) Hard to believe now, I know. In one story I heard, the world's most powerful nations went to war because one king had stolen the wife of another. So maybe it was Naive of the Mech, who had surely studied us in advance of their arrival, to believe they would be met with the same spirit of goodwill in which they had come. The greater miscalculation, though, was our own. Despite the Mech's obvious technological superiority, they were an inherently peaceful race, and appeared to possess nothing in the way of weapons or military capability. And so our planet's leaders decided that what was being offered by the Mech, and much more besides, could simply be taken by force, without having to give anything in return. They were wrong. Though the Mech were not a warlike species, we soon discovered that they had more than enough capacity to defend themselves. Gravely insulted by our refusal of their offer of peaceful cooperation and coexistence, and by our sudden declaration of war, they unleashed upon us weapons such as we had never seen, and repaid our insult by claiming our entire world and all of its resources as their own. Don't piss off the mech when they come bearing gifts. That's a lesson my people learned real fast. Our great superpowers joined together to fight back. Maybe there's some irony in the fact that my people, who had been ceaselessly fighting and killing each other for countless generations, now finally united in the face of a common enemy. And for a while, we even made a real fight of it. Using technology salvaged from whatever mech we managed to kill, we augmented our military enough to at least hold on. The war lasted the better part of ten years. But all we were doing was postponing the inevitable. It was always a losing battle. One city, one stronghold falling after another. Until only one remained. My mother was among those ordered to defend that last city. Twenty years ago now, when I was just a baby. She was a pilot of what they called a gun dog. The gun dog wasn't just our greatest weapon. It was our last hope. Built with some of that sweet stolen mechtech, it was the most fearsome war machine my people had ever created. And an entire legion of them was deployed to defend the city. It wasn't enough. The city fell. The gun dogs were destroyed. And what remained of my people were rounded up and enslaved in big labor camps. We call them townships now. To serve the Mech, who began to build their own cities on the ruins of ours before the dust even settled. Many believe we deserve our fate. The Mech offered us a chance at something better. A bright future, free of poverty and hunger and disease everything we'd always dreamed of. But instead of looking to the future, we once again fell back into the ways of our inglorious past, greed, selfishness, hostility, conflict. We pissed it all away, started a pointless war and lost it, and condemned all who would come after her to a lifetime of suffering and servitude. That's it. That's all I know. Chapter One The morning alarm sounded before sunup, as it did every day, without fail. That was the one thing you could say about the mech. They were reliable, like clockwork. The most advanced clockwork anyone had ever seen. Their machine composition was so intricate that military scientists charged with figuring it out during the Ten Year War had barely begun to scratch the surface of what made them tick before it was too late. And now, those precious secrets, obtained at such great cost and once thought the only hope of turning the tide, were lost forever, obliterated by the mech in the days after the war, along with the rest of human history and learning. The alarm was a shrill, modulated tone, designed by the mech to cause the greatest possible discomfort to the human ear, They had studied human anatomy and neurology well, both during the war and after, to maximize their every advantage over their enemy, and those efforts paid off in every detail, including this one. The alarm was essentially a sonic weapon that immediately brought on piercing headaches and nausea, and didn't cease until everyone in every barracks hut was out of bed and dressed and lined up for the morning headcount. From the alarm's first sounding till the time it was shut off was usually less than a minute. Few could tolerate it any longer than that. So there was no dawdling, even on the part of those too sick or infirm to be out of bed at such an hour. Others would haul them to their feet, dress them, and carry them outside if they had to. Anything to stop that sickening sound. The alarm roused everyone except Dakota, who was already awake. She woke early every morning and dressed ahead of the alarm, then lay on her bunk her eyes adapting to the dark, staring at the slats on the ceiling above. She had memorized every splinter and gnarl in the wood by now. What else was there to do? She wished she could sleep through the night, but some perpetual, indefinable itch at the back of her mind would inevitably wake her in the pre-dawn hours, and keep her awake while she listened to the snoring of the others, or sometimes the cawing of a distant bird outside. And now, the alarm drove a metal spike through her skull and twisted her stomach into an agonizing knot. And she was immediately on her feet and moving quickly across the barracks to her brother Sam's bunk. He was sitting up, groggy from waking and wincing in pain from the excruciating sound. Most others in the barracks were by now already out of bed and hurriedly dressing. But Sam was slower than most. Weaker. Sam, come on. Let's go. Dakota put her arm around him and lifted him out of bed. He swayed unsteadily on his feet as she helped him dress. Sam was missing his right arm below the elbow, and it wasn't easy for him to do it alone. Anyone who held up the head count and the cessation of the alarm would be in for a hard time at the hands of their barracks mates for the rest of the day, so Dakota always made sure that that never happened. He was a few years older than her, and for years, together, running and hiding before the mech finally captured them and brought them here. He had protected her, kept her alive. Now, together in this township, she did the same for him. She was all he had. Some fared better than others in captivity. The strong ones survived, and the weak ones, who were quickly identified by the mech as a waste of rations, were recycled. That's what they called it. For fuel, instead. Sam was somewhere in between. He had once been so strong a tower of strength and resilience that Dakota had come to admire and had tried to emulate. For as long as she could remember, she had looked up to him. But these past few years in the Mech township, they had taken something essential out of him, hollowed him out. Humans were not built to be prisoners, Dak. He had told her over and over again. When they were still living in abandoned farmhouses and sewers and half-destroyed apartment blocks, Constantly moving from place to place, trying to stay hidden. If it comes to it, I'll take care of us both. Better to die free than live in a cage. Back then, he always carried a pistol with two rounds in it that he saved just for that purpose. But when that time finally came, when the mech drones surrounded them in an open field with no hope of escape, he couldn't bring himself to put a bullet in his little sister. Instead... He just fell to his knees and sobbed, and they were both taken and brought here. In the years that followed, Sam became a living monument to what he had always told her. Humans were not built to be prisoners. Dakota's heart broke for him as she watched, each day reducing him to a little less than he was the day before. He lost so much weight that Dakota scarcely recognized him as the strong, fit man he once was. His uniform coveralls hung baggy and shapeless on his skeletal frame. His eyes grew sunken, his skin pallid. At night, she would often sit by the side of his bed and watch him sleep. And at times, he looked to her like a dead man ready for burial. When Sam lost his right arm a year ago in an accident with a steel press while working in one of the township factories, that might well have been the end. But Dakota who was fortunate to have been working just outside at the time and heard the cries, rushed in and saved him, tied off the wound and cauterized it using the factory tools at hand, then carried him back to the barracks to care for him. She worried he was already as good as dead. The mech considered a one-armed worker an inefficient expenditure of rations, and normally they would have recycled him the same day, but Dakota pleaded with the mech supervisor to spare him offering to split her rations with him until he was well enough to be productive again. Coming from anyone else, such a plea would have fallen on deaf ears. But Dakota had proven her worth to the township as an engineer and problem-solver many times over. And so, in a rare and ultimately pragmatic show of mercy, they allowed her brother to live. Sam never again returned to full work. In the mech's eyes, he was a cripple. Capable of only menial chores and unworthy of a full ration of food. So to keep him alive, Dakota continued to split her rations with him, to this day. But the toll that these past years as a slave laborer had taken on his body wasn't the worst of it. It was what it had done to his spirit that crushed Dakota the most. All the fight had gone out of him. This quick-minded improvisation, which had saved them from mech detection time and time again during their years as fugitives, and the gleam in his eye as they sat by night around makeshift fires and he told her stories of humanity's valiant last stand against the mech. All that was gone. Only this emaciated shell remained. Twice she had caught him close to ending his own life. Once with a sharpened piece of metal he'd snuck from the factory and later with a bottle of some dire mech chemical stolen from a maintenance shed. Both times she'd managed to talk him down, persuade him to keep living, if not for himself, then for her. Because he was all she had in this whole miserable world, and if he left her, who knew how long she would last before she followed? But she knew that despite his promises, the greatest threat to his life was not a mech or another accident his own deliberate hand. So, she continued to keep a close eye on him. Often while he was supposed to be working the gardening plot or ferrying supplies, she'd catch him just staring at the horizon, or at nothing, and she'd know what he was thinking. She'd make her way over as quickly as she could, before a mech watcher could get to him first, to give him a low-voltage jolt to spur him back to work, and give him a smile or a touch of her hand some reminder that he hadn't yet lost everything. Now she finished helping him dress, and together they joined the line of workers quickly filing out of the barracks into the floodlit night. Dakota hadn't seen the true dark of night, the stars in the sky, for years, blotted out as they were by the mech light towers that blazed from dusk till dawn, keeping the entire township awash in stark fluorescent light that made everything in the world look artificial, antiseptic, alien. There were shutters on the barracks doors to keep the light out so workers could sleep. But out here, in the open, it barely seemed like night at all. At least, not the kind Dakota remembered. Still, it would be sun up soon, and then the lights would shut down and stop humming. And there, the blue sky of day would be. And the sun, and the clouds. Not even the Met could take that away. She stood still beside her brother, waiting as the mech drone moved from one end of the line to the other, scanning each face, making sure that everyone who checked into the barracks' hut the night before was still present and accounted for. Only when every drone surveying every hut was satisfied did the morning alarm fall silent. Everyone exhaled in relief, their headaches and stomach pains abating. Then, at the sound of another alarm, This one, a short but unpleasant electronic squawk. They made their way to the canteen huts for their breakfast ration, the mech drones registering and recording their every move. By the time breakfast was over and everyone was reporting to their work assignments, the sun had just started coming up, breathing light and life into the day. There was a cool breeze, and Dakota took a moment to stop and close her eyes and feel it waft over her the briefest sense memory of freedom. Then she heard the telltale <coughs> of a mech drone approaching and got moving again before it could jolt her. Most everyone in the township worked to serve the mech. They toiled in factories and foundries and on assembly lines, turning the metal ore and other raw elements that arrived by automated convoy from other townships into the refined materials and components that the mech used to build more of their cities. Build more of themselves. But Dakota was different. She worked to sustain the township itself. Her specialty trade was everything. She fixed the plumbing when the pipes froze in winter or the toilets backed up. She patched fried electrical panels to keep the hut lights on. She decontaminated the water supply when it became undrinkable, as it so often did from the mech's toxic exhaust chemicals leaching into the groundwater. She kept the barracks' huts' dilapidated heating and ventilation systems running. She repaired the broken windows and leaking roofs. Basically everything that needed to be done to keep the mech's slave labor force from freezing to death or dying from poisoning or dehydration. Still, many did die. There was no township doctor no one old enough to have that kind of training or experience, and people frequently succumbed to illness and injuries that would have been routinely treatable before the war. The Mech could easily have provided medical facilities based on their vast knowledge of human physiology, but somewhere along the way, one of their impenetrable algorithms had calculated that it was more efficient to tolerate the mortality rate than to expend resources to curb it. There was, after all, a never-ending supply of people to replace those who were lost. New workers arrived in the township via mech prison vehicles on a regular basis. Dakota was an exception in that regard. Though no human was truly valuable, she was considered less expendable by the mech than most, as she had come to know every quirk and foible of the township's run-down utilities, better even than the mech themselves. And if she were to die, then many more might follow before she could be replaced more than the algorithm deemed acceptable. As she went about her day, she was always careful not to let Sam out of her sight for too long. He'd recently been moved to an outside gardening detail, tilling crops that helped supplement the worker food supply. So she too tried to stay outside as much as possible, making busy work for herself if necessary. The mech watchers would jolt her if they thought she was procrastinating. But today was easy. A barrack's hut roof had sprung a bad leak letting the rains in. Dakota might have needed only the work of a morning to patch the leak, but she had convinced a mech supervisor that it would be more efficient to re-shingle the whole roof, and further convinced the mech that it would take her at least two weeks, twice her actual estimate. She wanted to be up there for as long as possible, not only because it gave her a good view of Sam at his garden plot, but because she liked it up there. Being up off the ground, closer to the sky above, felt to her like a sort of freedom. Even though the roof of the hut wasn't even as tall as the township's perimeter fence, which could be seen in the distance, towering over everything. An ever-present reminder that even the briefest feeling of freedom was an illusion. Need a hand? Startled, Dakota almost hit her thumb with her hammer. She turned to see Runyon standing on the ladder she'd used to climb up here, peering over the edge of the roof at her. He was one of the youngest workers in the township, 18 or 19, she'd guessed, although she'd never really given it, or him, very much thought. "'Thanks, I'm good,' she said, turning back to the shingle she was working on. After hammering a few more times, she got the feeling she was still being watched, and turned again to see Runyon still standing there on the ladder, looking at her. She glared at him, and this time he seemed embarrassed and looked away. "'Do you need something?' Finish with my detail early, thought I might help. There was a quiver in his voice, like he was nervous, though Dakota couldn't imagine why. All she knew was, the last thing she wanted was someone to help her make this work go faster. She turned back to her work again. Go ask a supervisor. I'm sure they'll find something for you to do. Or just wait there. They'll find you. And true enough, there was the sound of a mech observer approaching at roof height, closing in on Runyon. Its sensors had detected him out of place and inactive. And even now, Dakota had no doubt it was charging up his electrified prod to jolt him. She was surprised by what Runyon did next. He should have raced back down the ladder. But instead, he stayed a moment longer, even as the drone drew closer. He spoke quickly. There's story time at the wreck hut tonight, right after dinner ration. You should come. I'll be there. Will you come? But before Dakota could answer the drone moved within just a few feet of Runyon, a moment from jolting him, and he slid down the ladder and raced back to his assigned area. She shook her head, took another roof nail from the box, and went back to work as the drone turned and moved away. Chapter Two After dinner ration, Dakota lay on her bunk, nursing the blisters on her hands. They weren't bad, Worse was the cut she'd gotten on her palm from a sharp sliver of wood hiding under an old shingle as she'd torn it away. She'd wrapped the cut as well as she could with a band of cloth torn from her coveralls, but could only hope it wouldn't get infected. She looked across the hut at the only other person there. Sam was on his bunk, asleep. Neither had spoken a word to each other all day, save for Dakota urging him to get up out of bed that morning. She missed him so much or at least the man he once was. The stronger sibling. The protector. The one who sang her songs at night and made the nightmares go away. Now he was living his own waking nightmare, and there was nothing she could do to help. She walked over to his bunk and sat by him, watching his chest move gently up and down with each breath. She reached out, stroked a stray lock of hair away from his face, and tucked it behind his ear. Those little things, it seemed, were all she could do for him. His eyes opened and he looked up at her. I thought you were sleeping, she said, half a whisper. I was, he said. I was dreaming about you. And then I woke up. And here you are. She smiled. You see? Dreams do come true. He darkened, probably reflecting on how little truth there really was to that. Dakota spoke quickly to keep him talking, rather than let him sink into some bleak hole of his own making. Tell me about your dream. It was that time. Do you remember? When we were living in that bus terminal? Dakota smiled again. She remembered that as one of their happier times together. That old bus station was half-destroyed, and it reeked of urine and spent ammunition— but it was good shelter, and it had taken the mech a long time to find them there, which was all that mattered. They'd spent almost two weeks there, longer than they'd ever been able to stay in any one place, enough to make themselves something, like, comfortable. And in a strange way, it had almost begun to feel like a home. Dakota was distraught when Sam told her he had seen mech surveyors on the horizon and that they had to leave. I remember, she said. We made a chess set out of those old nuts and bolts and spark plugs we found around the place, and drew a board on the ground with chalk, said Sam. Some light had returned to his face at the memory of a happier time. And you always won, said Dakota, though she remembered that she had let him win on more than one occasion. I wish we could go back there again, said Sam, that worrying, vacant stare returning now. It's not good to think too much about the past. Dakota said. There's nothing for us back there. There's nothing for us here either, said Sam. Now Dakota was really starting to worry about him. He must have seen that register in her expression because he reached out to touch her arm. I know you don't like to look back. But it's what makes me happy, he said, thinking about those times when it was just you and me. Her hand closed around his, It's still just you and me. It always will be. Sam raised his head and looked at the empty barracks. Where is everyone? It took Dakota a moment to remember what Runyon had told her earlier. Story time in the wreck hut. Oh yeah. That kid Runyon, he asked me if you were going. He asked me too. You know he likes you. Dakota felt her face flush, which annoyed her. Relationships between workers weren't forbidden, but... That kind of attention was the last thing she needed. Least of all from a callow boy, so skinny he looked like he had to walk around in the shower to get wet. She had enough to worry about as it was. Why don't you go? asked Sam. You know why. You're imagining things. Am I? said Dakota. You've seen the way some of the other workers look at me. They don't like me. They think I'm a mech pet. They don't want me socializing with them. "'When's the last time you even tried?' Sam asked. It was a good question. Dakota could hardly remember the last time she'd made much of a conversation with anyone besides her brother. Trying to shoo Runyon down off her damn roof earlier in the day was about as sociable as she'd been in... forever. "'I'll go if you go with me,' she offered. What might be good for her would surely be good for him, too, and she didn't like the idea of leaving him alone here in the barracks.' I'm too tired, he said. I can barely keep my eyes open. I'm fine, really. I just want to sleep. Maybe find that dream again. But promise you won't just sit here and watch me. Promise me you'll go, and you can tell the stories to me after. She squeezed his hand again. I promise. One night every week, the mech allowed free socialization within the township's recreation huts for an hour between dinner ration and lights out. Another mech algorithm had determined that a small amount of recreation time, properly regulated, was ultimately beneficial to production. Few wasted the opportunity to come talk and sing songs and drink shine from a still that they had somehow managed to keep hidden and try to forget their troubles. As she approached the rec huts, Dakota could see the flickering of gaslight in the windows, could hear the sounds of talk and laughter and song. This was how much of the old world must have been, she imagined. Though she was too young to remember. Born nine years into the Ten Year War. And though the thought of joining the gathering filled her with trepidation, she felt an equal sense of attraction to the warmth and companionship within. She had been starved of these things her entire life though they were as essential to human survival as water and air. She waited by the door for a moment, gathering herself before pulling it open and walking inside. Dakota felt as though every single face turned to stare at her. That was an exaggeration, but in truth, many did. Their silent glowers questioning why she was there. She did her best to ignore them as she made her way through the crowded room to an unclaimed seat and continued to avert her eyes until her onlookers got bored and returned to their conversations. Apparently, no one felt passionately enough about her being there to make something of it, perhaps because they remembered what happened the last time someone tried to goad her. An older woman, in her late twenties, big and stocky, had stepped right up to her and spat in her face and called her the daughter of a traitorous whore. Shortly after that, the woman was relocated to another township with a different work remit, One where the loss of an eye wasn't an impediment to productivity. So Dakota sat, quietly, alone, and people watched. There were so many faces, and so many of them alike. At 22, she was among the youngest here, while the oldest person in the township was said to be just over 30. She'd never seen anyone older than that inside the fence, though she and Sam had come across many older men and women during their years on the run. Those poor souls were nearly always terrified, barely able to speak beyond begging Sam and Dakota to let them join their group, share whatever shelter they had. It always crushed Dakota to have to turn them away, but Sam made no room for sympathy, knowing it would get them killed. Older people were a priority target for the mech, shoot on sight, everybody knew that, although there were conflicting theories as to why... The most common one was simply that only those in their physical prime were considered proper fodder for laboring in the townships. Some mech algorithm determined that beyond a certain age, you were in inexorable decline, slower and weaker every day, an entropic organism with no capacity to be easily repaired or refurbished, like a damaged mech, fit only for recycling. Someone at the head of the room, where a fire crackled in a stone hearth, was just finishing a tale about a time before the Mech, long before anyone present was born. Dakota caught only the end of it. Something about a time when countless innocent men and women and even children were marched to their own cremation, not by the Mech, but by their fellow human beings. And the nations of the world rose up in alliance to defeat those who would perpetrate such an atrocity. It was a popular story. One that highlighted humanity at both its best and worst. The teller always swore that it had been told to him by his own father, who had read about it in a proper history book. But as captivating as the story was, most dismissed it as a fable. Its crimes too monstrous to be true of human nature, its valor too improbable. Especially the part about young men wading out of boats onto an entrenched enemy beach only to be mown down en masse by machine gun fire. Yet still they came, wave after wave, until they took the beach and began to drive an enemy once thought unassailable toward ultimate defeat. Some held fast that it was all true, every word. But Dakota, who'd heard the story before, agreed with the majority that it was little more than a fairy tale. (gasps) You came! Dakota looked up to see Runyon standing there, a big grin on his face like he'd lucked into a triple ration. In the walk over here from her barracks, she'd forgotten this might happen. All she wanted to do was sit and listen quietly, not get drawn into an interaction she knew would only exhaust her. Uh, mind if I sit down? Runyon asked. Dakota gestured to the space on the bench next to her as blithely as she could, trying to indicate that though he wasn't unwelcome, nor was he particularly welcome either. Runyon seemed to understand at least the first part of that, and happily sat down next to her, slightly closer than she would have liked. She shifted over opening a more comfortable distance between them. So, what made you change your mind? Runyon asked. I didn't, said Dakota. My brother insisted I come. Ah, said Runyon. How is he? Your brother. Dakota turned and looked at him. No one ever asked her that. To everyone else, Sam was a liability. A slacker. Someone who had gotten preferential treatment from the mech because his sister was deemed to be of special value to the township. No one else ever gave a shit about Sam. And yet, here was this kid, asking after a man he barely knew and certainly had no reason to care about. "Uh, He has good days and bad days, said Dakota, realizing instantly that she had already told him more than she wanted to. Her brother's welfare was their own private business, no one else's. She should have just said fine and been done with it. Well, that's better than nothing, I guess, said Runyon. My brother lost his foot to gangrene a few years ago. The mech recycled him. She scowled at him. A foot's not the same as a hand. Sam still works. He's productive. And his ration comes out of mine. So if you want to accuse me of- Runyon threw up his hands and surrendered. No, that's not what I mean. I I know some others think that way, but that's not me. That's not what I was trying to say at all. Then what were you trying to say? Uh, I guess just count your blessings? I'm sorry. He lowered his hands, and Dakota could tell that he felt genuinely embarrassed. He wasn't ill-intentioned. Quite the opposite, she now realized. He was just naive. Another storyteller was taking his place by the hearth. Dakota recognized him. His name was Sellers, and the rumor, much contested, was that he was the oldest person in the township. Someone actually born before the mech arrived though too young to remember anything of that lost world. As he prepared to speak, Dakota shifted uneasily in her seat and thought seriously about leaving, because there was only one story he ever told, and she'd heard it enough. She waited, though, to be sure. It had been a long while since she'd been to story time. Maybe Sellers had a new story by now. Let me tell you... Sellers said to a rapt audience as the fire crackled behind him. About the gun dogs. Dakota got up to leave. As she feared, it was the same old story. But she was stopped by Runyon's hand on her arm. He looked up at her with those sad puppy dog eyes of his. Don't go, he implored. This one's my favorite. It isn't mine, she replied. Though the truth was, she didn't dislike the tale itself. Only when someone other than her brother told it. They always got something about it wrong. Besides, it was their family's story and no one else's. Yet somehow, though she fully intended to leave, she found her feet rooted to the spot. Something deep within her wanted her to stay and listen. And so she sat back down, even as she struggled to understand why. And so they listened, as Sellers told his tale, the same way he always told it, about the final battle. Mankind's last stand against the Mech at a place called Bismarck. It was the only human city still standing. The city to which all remaining military forces had retreated after falling back again and again. Suffering loss after loss to the overwhelmingly superior Mech. Still, at the time, it had seemed there was hope. Humanity's greatest scientist had at last begun to unlock the secret of the Mech's technological superiority. Reverse engineering captured drones and surveyors and battle units, and what they learned, they incorporated into a weapon, known as the gundog. The gundog was an armored vehicle, taller even than the township's perimeter fence, that strode across the land on two great legs like a colossus. The stolen mech technology made it a more fearsome weapon than anything yet deployed against them, a taste of their own medicine. Piloting the dogs were the best and the bravest warriors. Those who had proven themselves against the mech in battle after battle. In those desperate final days, the military had only managed to build a dozen or so dogs, But still, it was hoped that they were potent enough to hold the last city and save the millions of innocents cowering within. For six days and six nights, the dogs gave the mech a fight like they had never seen. In that short time, more mech battle units were shredded and smashed into junk than in the entirety of the ten years preceding. And for a few glorious days, it seemed as though the city might actually hold. But though the gun dogs were the mech's match in terms of armament and battle strength, the enemy had an overwhelming advantage. An advantage that was probably the defining factor of the entire war. The ability to quickly repair and remake themselves. Mech reclaimers roamed the smoking battlefield after each engagement, collecting damaged and destroyed battle units, then made new ones out of the scrap metal, spitting out fresh mech fighters almost as fast as the gun dogs could bring them down. Nothing was wasted. Everything got recycled and redeployed. One by one, the brave gun dogs fell, said Sellers, approaching the end of his story. By now, most everyone in the room was leaning in, spellbound. He was a good storyteller, Dakota had to admit. Almost as good as Sam. Until only one remained. The mech came in overwhelming numbers. And still, that last gundog stood its ground. Fighting to the last. Until it was overwhelmed. Swarmed by the rampaging mech. And so too, went the last city. Some say the rusted shell of that last dog still stands outside what we used to call Bismarck. The mech erected their own city on its foundation. After destroying everything we had built. But the last gun dog they left standing. As a tribute, some say. A salute to their enemy's courage and defiance. A monument that will stand for all time. There was a long pause before anyone spoke. Just the sound of the fire in the hearth spitting and crackling. Bullshit. That had come from near the back of the room. Everyone turned to see. A man back there, Dakota didn't know his name, emerged from the shadows where he'd been listening. You have a problem with my tail? Sellers asked. That's all it is. A tail, said the man. There was an angry look about him. We all know about the gun dogs, the last stand. What you never say is what really happened there. That they didn't fight to the last, but ran. Fled before the mech when the battle started to turn against them. Cowards to the last. That's why the last city fell. Why there's no monument outside Bismarck. Am I the only one who knows this? There was a murmur of agreement around the room, and now Dakota really wanted to leave. She'd heard this version of the story before, too, and liked it even less than the other. She was about to stand, but her path to the door was now too crowded to get there without making herself conspicuous, and all she really wanted at this moment was to be invisible. I understand why you tell it your way, the man went on, but it's a lie. And it's one that gets people riled up for no good reason. It's a tale of heroism, offered Sellers meekly, looking around as if becoming aware that the room was slowly turning against him. What good is that to any of us now? asked another man, standing from his table. What good was it even then? We lost the war, and anyone who hears that story and gets some damn fool idea about standing up against the mech only gets themselves recycled. There was another ripple of agreement this one more emphatic than the last. There was some truth in what the man had said. Every once in a while, a worker who couldn't take life in the township anymore snapped and tried to escape, or gave way to anger and attacked a mech observer. Whether or not the old war fables Sellers and the others liked to tell played part in any of this was debatable, but there was no denying that defying the mech only ever ended one way, with immediate extermination and recycling. That's not the worst of it, said a third man, also rising to his feet. Dakota knew this man's name and wished now that she'd taken the risk of trying to leave when the thought first struck her. The gun dogs were worse than cowards, said Carmichael. He shot a glare at Dakota from across the room. They were traitors. Like all the rest of them, the entire bloody generation before us who started that war. The mech came to them in peace, and they bit the hand that tried to feed them. And now we all suffer because of their short-sightedness and greed. That's the legacy they left for us before we were ever born. Carmichael glanced again at Dakota, his unspoken accusation plain. If any one of them was here to answer for what they did, I'd sooner kill them than any mech I've ever met. And that got the biggest agreement from the room yet. Not from everyone. But enough that it was damn near a roar. As much as the township hated the mech, they hated their own forebearers more. Their parents and grandparents who had responded to an offering of peace and goodwill by making war. Everyone here lived with the misery of that choice every day. And what made it worse was that those who were to blame were no longer present to be held to account for it. They were all dead now. Either killed by the Mech during the Ten Year War, or rounded up and exterminated after. Instead, it was this next generation, too young to have played any part in the war who remained to pay the price. The chorus of approval stopped suddenly at the sound of a chair toppling backwards and hitting the stone floor hard. All heads turned to Dakota. Many had no doubt been expecting this from her since she first entered the room, and every one of them was surprised to see that it was not she who had sprung to her feet. It was Runyon. Dakota was still seated next to him, tugging at his arm, beckoning him to sit back down, but he was having none of it. He was no longer looking at her as he had been for much of the evening, but across the room, at Carmichael. For a moment there was silence, everyone wondering what would happen next. Runyon was known around the township as quiet and meek, more a boy than a man. This was entirely out of character for him. Her parents weren't traitors, he said, putting a hand on Dakota's shoulder. She shrugged it away, but Runyon was undeterred. And they weren't cowards either. They fought in the war because they had to. Everyone did back then. You can believe what you want, but whatever the truth about the war is, no one here deserves to carry the stigma for it. For a moment there was silence. Then Carmichael sneered. He was not about to be put off by this weakling boy. If her parents weren't cowards, and she isn't one, why does she need you to speak for her? Or are you just trying to get in her good graces so she'll finally fuck you? Dakota bolted from her chair and vaulted over the table in a single move, closed the distance between her and Carmichael, and before he could even react, she slammed him against the wall so hard it shook. She pinned him there with her forearm across his chest. My parents aren't here to answer you, she spat, but I am. My mother fought for the last city. She stood against the mech when there was no one else left. Insult her again, and we'll see which one of us is the coward. Dakota was scarcely more than half Carmichael's size and weight. But her sudden anger had given her strength that made her more than a match for him. He tried to push back against her, but she just pressed him harder against the wall. She could see the wheels turning in his head as he weighed his options. All eyes were on him, but if he backed down now in front of everyone, he'd never hear the end of it. But he'd also surely heard the story about the woman whose eye she'd gouged. In the end, he decided to press his luck. Maybe she wasn't a coward, he said boldly. Maybe she didn't run away. Maybe she struck a deal with the mech. A collaborator. Maybe that's why you and your cripple brother get special treatment around here. Because she- Dakota drove her fist into his stomach, taking all the wind from him and buckling his knees. Others rushed to drag her away, and Runyon waded into the fray in an effort to protect her. For a few moments, it was chaos. Then the wreck hut's door was blasted off its hinges and two mech enforcers floated inside, blasting a piercing sound wave that was worse than even the morning alarm. They ordered everyone to disperse back to their barracks and jolted anyone not obeying quickly enough. The night was cold outside, and bright as usual, the blazing tower lights casting everything in that horrible antiseptic pale blue. As Dakota hurried back to her barracks hut under the watchful eyes of the mech drones, she heard someone running up behind her. "'Hey,' It was Runyon. Are you okay? She whipped around to face him. I was. What the hell was that? What did you think you were doing back there? Runyon seemed at a loss for words. I I was just trying to stand up for you, he managed. His voice was quavering, far more than when he had confronted Carmichael. Well, don't, said Dakota. I don't need anyone to do that for me. Don't ever. She stopped. What happened to your eye? Runyon reached up to touch his left eye, then quickly moved his hand away, wincing. It was red and swollen where someone had landed a fist or an elbow during the melee. It's nothing, he said. She was about to say something when she saw a mech drone moving towards them, its jolt prod at the ready. They'd been stationary for too long, and almost everyone who had been ejected from the wreck hut was already back in their barracks. Put some ice on that, she said quickly. Then she turned and walked away. Chapter 3 Dakota couldn't sleep at all that night. Her mind was filled with racing thoughts, anxieties, questions. A walk might have helped, but by night, that was impossible. The hut doors and windows would be locked until the morning alarm, and even if they weren't, she'd be lucky to get ten feet outside before a mech sensor picked up her movement. So, she just lay on her bunk, tossing and turning, trying to will herself to sleep. What's wrong? The voice was barely a whisper. She opened her eyes to see Sam kneeling beside her bunk. Nothing, she said, keeping her voice low. Go back to sleep. I will when you will. Thin slivers of light from the mech towers bled through the edges of the window, revealing Sam's kind smile. The smile she had grown to rely on so much during their years in the open. But she could tell he was worried about her. That had been the pattern of their lives together for as long as Dakota could remember. Taking turns worrying about each other. What happened tonight? He asked. I heard the commotion. A couple of guys had too much shine. Got into it. She said casually. But Sam could always tell when she was lying. So he said nothing. Just sat there waiting for the truth to come. Sam, she said finally. How much do you know about what really happened at Bismarck? What do you mean, really happened? I've told you the story a thousand times. That was barely an exaggeration. It was the story Dakota had most often asked Sam to tell her in their time before the township, when they hunkered down by night in old subways and parking structures, listening to the sound of distant gunfire. She'd lie with her head in his lap and he'd stroke her hair and tell her about the last city and humanity's last stand outside of it, about the gun dogs and about their mother, who was the last of them still standing, still fighting the mech even after the rest had fallen. It was often the only thing that got her to sleep. Some people say that Mom and the others ran away when the battle was lost, said Dakota. That there's no gun dog standing outside the last city. They only say that because they're jealous, said Sam. Because that's what their folks did in the war. Surrender or hide or run. Mom was a hero. She died fighting for something she believed in. And they have no idea what that must feel like. But how do you know she was a hero, Sam? I mean, no for sure. You weren't there. And you're too young to really remember. I remember what Dad told me before he died. And that's enough. Tell it to me again, she said. He smiled down at her, then shifted his position and sat on the side of her bunk. Come here, he said. She placed her head in his lap while he stroked her hair, and told her the story one more time. And before he was halfway done, she was sound asleep. The next morning after breakfast ration, Dakota was on her way to the roof she'd been working on for the past two weeks when a mech supervisor approached, and reassigned her to replace the broken door at the wreck hut. Normally that job would have taken her the better part of the morning, but since she couldn't keep her eye on Sam from down on the ground, she managed to get the new door fitted and hung in just over an hour. The mech supervisor scanned the door suspiciously, as if not trusting the quality of work done in such haste, but ultimately conceded that she'd done the job satisfactorily, and allowed her to get back to her roof. As she climbed the ladder, She wondered if she'd made a tactical error. She'd stretched her time up here by working as slowly as she could get away with, but now, she'd quite clearly demonstrated that she could work much faster than that. Once that data was fed into the algorithm, would the mech grow to question her honesty? The thought frightened her. The trust they placed in her was the only thing keeping her brother alive. She resumed her work, picking up where she left off the day before. But it was distractingly hot today especially with no shade up here on the roof, and she found it difficult to concentrate. Her mind insisted on returning to the same nagging thoughts that had kept her awake the night before. Why had she stayed to listen to the gun dog story when every instinct had told her to leave? For that matter, why had she gone to story time in the first place when all she really wanted was to stay with Sam? And why? This one bugged her like an unscratchable itch most of all. Why was it not the insults directed at her own family that had provoked her into sudden violence, but the vulgar crack about Runyon's intentions towards her? Runyon and his stupid swollen eye. Wasn't even that bad of an injury, yet, at the sight of it last night, she'd been tempted to take him back to her barracks and tend to it herself. Why did she even care? He's not even- She hit her thumb with the hammer and cursed loudly enough that several workers below looked up at her. She turned away embarrassed and annoyed as she shook out her hand she'd gotten herself good that thumb was sure to hurt for the rest of the day at least she took a swig of lukewarm water from the plastic bottle on her belt then centered herself by watching sam working in the gardening plot below he must have felt her gaze on him because he turned and looked up at her then propped his rake against his body and waved she smiled and waved back She was about to get back to work when she heard a familiar sound behind her. The grinding of mechanical gears that preceded the opening of the township's main gate. She turned and watched as the mech enforcers floated over to the entrance, taking up positions to discourage anyone from trying to make a break for it while the gate was open. And their presence was definitely discouraging. While the observers and utility drones could give you a jolt strong enough to drop you into a convulsing heap... An enforcer could simply vaporize you outright, from 50 meters away. Dakota had seen it happen before, and so had most of the others. So when the enforcers took up positions, any workers who found themselves in the vicinity were quick to find somewhere else to be. A mech transport, an armored train comprising five short windowless cars, held off the ground by some kind of magnetic repulsor tech, floated into the township, and the gate closed behind it. Just about everyone was watching now, as curious as Dakota was to see what was inside. The mech usually tolerated this. Too many idlers to jolt all at once, Dakota supposed. And a convoy delivery rarely took more than a couple of minutes, so the work stoppage was minimal. Sometimes these transports brought raw materials for the township's factories and foundries. Sometimes they carried a general resupply of parts, food, water. And sometimes they brought in new workers either captured out in the world, though Dakota wondered how many free people could possibly still be left 20 years after the war, or transferred from another township under orders from the algorithm. The transport came to a halt, and the mech enforcers forcers converged around it. That was enough for Dakota to know what was inside. New workers. Sure enough, when the train doors slid open with a mechanical hiss, men and women shuffled out from the darkness within, squinting against the bright sunlight. It was easy to tell which were freshly captured and which were transfers from another township. Transfers wore uniform coveralls issued to all township workers, while the new workers wore whatever ragged clothes they'd been captured in. But even if they had all been dressed alike, Dakota would have been able to distinguish the two groups simply by their demeanor. New captures always looked terrified and uncertain. They didn't know exactly what fate awaited them here, but they'd heard the horror stories. Transfers, by contrast, looked resigned, numb, their wills broken long ago by years of mech confinement. One man, barefoot and dressed in a torn, oil-stained sweater and filthy, ragged jeans, stumbled and fell as he exited the transport. A drone was on him instantly, grabbing him with its pincers and hauling him back to his feet before moving him along with a jolt. The man was stick-thin, severely emaciated, another obvious sign of a new capture. Though the food the mechs served in the township was unappetizing, it was calorie-dense, and no one was ever malnourished, whereas those on the outside were often reduced to surviving on berries and bracken, as Dakota and Sam once had. Dakota found herself thinking, just for a moment, that maybe the poor man was better off here. Judging by his current condition, she doubted he would have lasted more than another week on the outside, whereas here at least he'd have food, clean clothes. But she dismissed the thought as quickly as it had come, and felt ashamed for having even entertained it. She remembered the words of her brother, repeated so many times during their fugitive years, when Dakota, in her gnawing hunger and despair, had suggested that it might be better for them if they simply surrendered to the mech. Freedom is better, he would tell her. Freedom is always better. With typical mech efficiency, the drones sorted the prisoners into two groups. The transfers were escorted directly to the barracks huts that would be their new homes, while the new captures were taken to an imposing concrete slab of a structure, known to all as the Orientation Building. Everyone had to go through orientation after their capture. A week-long process in which new arrivals were rigorously familiarized with the rules and operating procedures of the township. That was the stated purpose, anyway. In Dakota's view, orientation was more about weeding out the weak and the troublesome before they could become a liability. Most new arrivals would leave that building ready to work hard, to obey orders, and to do whatever was necessary to survive under the township regime. But some would never leave it at all. They were recycled. As the two groups were led along separate paths to their destinations, Dakota noticed one young man who stood out from the rest. He was in the transfer group. But instead of wearing the standard coveralls, he wore baggy cargo pants, lace-up running shoes, and a faded t-shirt that read, Old Navy Athletic Department, 1994, whatever that meant. She reckoned him to be about 25 or 26, although something about him suggested a soul much older. His hair was wild and unkempt, but he seemed to be in good physical shape, and his eyes were keen and bright as they darted around. And that was what truly made him stand out, more so than his strange clothes. He seemed alert, observant, alive, so different from those around him, with their haunted, barren expressions. Dakota had never seen anyone quite like him, except perhaps Sam in his younger days, before the mech captivity stole all the fight out of him. As he surveyed the township, he glanced up at the roof where Dakota was working and stared directly at her. Suddenly feeling conspicuous, she turned away, pretending to busy herself. And when she dared to look back again, he was no longer looking at her. Instead, he seemed to be surveying every township worker in the vicinity, pausing to examine each face before moving on to the next. He was still doing it when a mech drone gave him a jolt to spur him through the door of his barracks hut with the other transfers. The gate opened once more, and the transport, now empty of its human cargo, exited the township the whole thing had taken less than two minutes. And yet, for the rest of the day, Dakota couldn't stop thinking about the alert young man who had caught her looking at him. Gundog was created and written by Gary Whitta, and performed by Shannon Woodward. Music by Austin Wintory, edited by David Gatewood. Sound editing by Adam Nickerson. Video editing by Chandana Ekenayaka.